It's Wednesday, October the 6th. You're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your host today. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow doing podcasting, though. Uh, and if you don't believe me, very simple. Go to hoover.org and click on where it says publications and go to where it says podcast. Click on that. You'll see a whole host of podcasts, including one with our guest you're about to meet here in a moment. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for a monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox once a month. Hoover Podcast, just one part of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is John Yu. John is a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, formerly the Bolt Law School. He co-hosts Hoover's Pacific Century Podcast with Bishop Oslin, and he's Richard Epstein's sparring partner on the Law Talk Podcast. John, thanks for joining my podcast. <laughs> thanks, Bill. And uh, when you're with Richard Epstein, you're just the punching dummy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or, or, John, anything you'd like to add. <laughs> yeah. We love Richard. Richard, uh, Richard yeah. is uh, Richard's good people. Uh, so, John, uh, three things I'd like to get into on today's podcast. Number one, let's talk about the uh, legality, the constitutionality of vaccine mandates. Secondly, let's talk about what the Supreme Court is up to now that the calendar has turned to October and a new session is underway. And then thirdly, let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump and his ongoing fight to with Twitter to get uh, restored. He has now gone to court to get a, um, a temporary uh, to get temporarily get back on that uh, server. Uh, so let's begin with mandates, John. Uh, very simple. Joe Biden signed an executive order on September the 9th requiring all government employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 by November 22nd. That means federal employees have to receive their final uh, dose by November the 8th, four Air Force officers and a Secret Service agent promptly filed a lawsuit seeking to block the mandate. Uh, we look around the country, John, what do we see? Uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced that all city employees would have to be vaccinated by October the 15th. The head of the city's largest police union compared it to the Holocaust. New York City teachers tried to hold a mandate, instructing them to be vaccinated by the end of the day. Last Friday, the first one, uh, first month would be placed on unpaid leave until September 2022. Justice Sotomayor stepped in and refused to block it. Uh, just last week, California became the first state to announce a COVID-19 vaccine requirement, John, for all public and private school children in grades 7 through 12. Uh, what else about the vaccine? Well, just yesterday, ESPN's Sage, uh, Sage Steele was pulled off the air after knocking her company's vaccine mandate. Six United exempted workers are challenging United mandate policy in a federal lawsuit in Texas. Northwell, uh, North, uh, Northwell Health, New York State's largest healthcare provider, announced that 1,400 employees have been terminated for refusing to be vaccinated. Uh, here in California, Kaiser just suspended 2,200 workers for not getting vaccinated as required. Uh, the backdrop to this, John, nearly about one quarter of Americans 18 and older remained unvaccinated. So very simple question for you, my friend. Is it legal to force people to get, man uh, to get vaccinated? Simple question, hard answer. <laughs> like all of your questions. That's what we strive here, but it's a very simple legal question. Can I force, if you if you are in my employment, can I force you to get a vaccine mandate or else take away your job? Yeah. So here's a way to answer, not just this question, but any legal question like this, which is split it up into two. One is the question of power, right? Mm -hmm. Does the government or the employer have the power? And then the second question we get to, which is compli more complicated even than that one, is rights. Right. Even if the government has a power, do you have some individual right to resist or block the government? And this so is what you and this is what you and Robert Dale Hunty were writing about National Review recently, right? Yeah, this yeah. The question yeah, yeah. question of presidential power, but also division of authority between federal and state governments. Exactly. And so you have three different actors, Bill. You just listed there. You have the federal government, mm -hmm. state government, and then you have private companies, right. private businesses. 
And the answer of powers is different with each one. Mm-hmm. So uh, the easiest one is state government. Uh, under our constitution, and this is not just for MAC mandates, it's for everything involving COVID, really. The state governments have what we call the police power. They can regulate everything and everyone in their territory. And so if you look at state constitution, it doesn't even list powers. It just assumes or grants the state of California has a power over everything within the state. So the question for uh, vaccine mandates, if it's the California government or it's a county or city government, they generally have the power to do it. The federal government, though, is supposed to be limited, restricted powers, what we call interstitial. They only fill gaps in the areas where states can't reach. And so generally, we say the federal government does not have the authority to impose a mandate on everyone in the country, not just for vaccines, for anything. This is the lesson we learned from Obamacare. The federal government could not force everyone in the country to buy health insurance. So what the federal government does is sort of shimmies, and I don't know if that's a word anymore in the 2020s, but shimmies and slides around uh, to figure out ways to use those nooks and crannies where it has power to reach a lot of people. So the one, the one you mentioned, Bill, is the easiest one for them is people who work for the federal government. Right. So they're just like private employers. They can just place certain restrictions on what their employees do. They can also try to reach government contractors. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the first example, the first one, the government and its own employees was President Truman desegregating the military right. long before Brown versus Board of Education. Then government contractors. So you might have saw recently, just the other day, Southwest announced they're going to require the vaccine for all employees, right? They lost, right. they held out longer than United and American. And the reason they gave is because we're, the government is so much of our business, we have to do it. So, uh, and you might remember President Kennedy, for example, imposed racial non-discrimination that way before the Civil Rights Acts in 64 and 65 were passed. Um, so, and then the other way the federal government, the most controversial thing the federal government and President Biden are trying to do in this kind of let's figure out our narrow federal powers and fill those nooks and crannies up is uh, OSHA. This boring, boring law, which now everyone is going to be familiar with, which is occupational safety and health. Right. This is the statute that regulates factory floors, for example. Uh, and so the, through that power, the federal government claims the right and has had the right to you know, write, uh, create standards for how workplaces uh, and so we've had some very controversial decisions in that area. The federal government, for example, has tried to create ergonomics. You may not remember this bill, but I do. There was a time when uh, I think uh, the federal government wanted to create standards for keyboards and mice and monitors. It was an ergonomics right. workplace. Right. So this is the same kind of rule. That, I think, is a big stretch. And I think that's where the Biden vaccine mandate is going to suffer its first defeat, is trying to claim through the right to regulate the workplace, we can force everybody to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, there are loopholes. You can claim exemptions. For example, you can claim a religious exemption. I was noticing there's been a saga out here in the Bay Area, John, where you and I live. Uh, one of the basketball players for the Gold State Warriors, Andrew Wiggins, uh, had not been vaccinated. The NBA, by the way, claims that 95% of its players have been vaccinated. I, I'm sorry, I'm a skeptic. I'd like to see proof of that. Anyway, Wiggins, <laughs> Wiggins had not been vaccinated, and um, the NBA has a policy in which uh, if you're not vaccinated, your team is playing uh, in, let's say, San Francisco, where there's a mandate saying you have to be vaccinated to go into that arena, or in Brooklyn, where if you're going to go to the Barclays Arena, you have to be vaccinated to go in. Your player can't go in if not vaccinated. So Wiggins was sitting out there not vaccinated. In his case, if he doesn't get it, it means he misses half of the 
this team's games, uh, uh, if not more when they go on the road. Um, anyway, apparently, John, he tried to, uh, he asked for a religious exemption, but he didn't get it. <laughs> what um, was his religion? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the whole <laughs> story. been his problem. <laughs> but I'm just kind of curious as to, it, so this has been the question of, um, you can try to claim you have a religious exemption, but it could be shot down. So what does that mean? You're just, your employer looks at it and says, no, John, you does not, you know, that's not a legitimate church he's claiming, or just doesn't have, he doesn't have proof of a church. I mean, how, how would you deny a religious exemption? So this goes to that second part of it, which is what are the rights, you know, yeah. even if the you're working for an employer who has the power or the state government running the school system or mm-hmm. you work for the federal government, even if they have the power, you still have individual liberties. Right. And so uh, some of them are uh, required by law, by a law Congress has passed. And some of them are just directly under the free exercise clause of the first amendment of the constitution. Right. That's what you would use against state and federal governments. Uh, with regard to the warriors, this is more a federal employment law, which kind of copies the idea that you should have a right of religious uh, free expression can't be used as a criteria to discriminate against you mm-hmm. in employment. And then also another one, medical exemption. That's another area that's very complicated because right. a friend of mine at George Mason University, a professor there, he he sued his university because he said, I don't want to get a vaccine because I already had COVID. And so I, there should be a medical exemption for people who've already had the disease because maybe there's evidence if you give someone a vaccine when they've already had it, they're not getting any benefit because they're already immune the and they're going to get side, they're subject to side effects. It has no you know, therapeutic value. Mm-hmm. So those are the two main exceptions, religious freedom. And so this is a great case. Bill. I mean, this is, uh, uh, this is why I stay away from religion and the law as a teaching subject, because it always got me um, confused. Who gets to decide what the religion is? What if Wiggins says, I belong to the church of anti-vaxxers? Right. right. So, so the court has actually said um, that certain religions that are very small are still religions. There was a case a few years ago by a guy who basically had like 20 followers. Right. And the court still said he was a church. You know, he called himself a church and he was the leader of the church and they might have believed crazy things. But the court doesn't really want to get in the business of reviewing who counts it, what counts as a religion and what doesn't count as a religion. Right. Wiggins' problem sounds like he couldn't even he couldn't even think of one religion that said, but why didn't he make himself out to be, a, well, he could have been a Jehovah's Witness or a Mennonite, right? There are certain religions that have been recognized by the courts, which have a lot of skepticism towards modern science. He could have claimed that. And then, you know, Bill, I think your point, he would have had a really good case, I think. Now, yeah. the interesting thing is what if, this is what I would think is even harder. What if the, what, what if the warriors kept paying him, but they just didn't play him? Right. Which last time I saw the Warriors might be a good thing actually for the Warriors to do is not play, you know, play this guy anyway. But they could have just said, okay, we're going to pay you. We're going to fulfill our contract. Nothing in our contract says we have to give you any, you know, floor time. So what's interesting there, John, is the way the NBA has gotten around this is uh, the players union originally uh, wanted to refuse the vaccine, wanted to say, no, you can't force us to do this. Uh, yeah. And then they quickly realized uh, one thing that probably they'd be losing a lot of money if they did this because they probably just not get paid saying you're not showing up, you're not getting paid. So they cut a deal with the league in which uh, if a player misses a game due to this. Uh, so in the case of Kyrie Irving, the, the mm-hmm. great player for the Brooklyn yeah. Nets, this could be vastly expensive because he's in the same situation as Wiggins. He could miss oh, all he his did get vaccinated. Oh, uh, he still has not gotten and he. He's 
he just marches to his own beat. So he may very well hold the line on this, but um, so he could lose half his tickets. Um, but what the league said was basically, if you um, have not been vaccinated and you don't play a game because of that, you lose, I think one, one ninety six of your pay, which calculates, I think regular preseason games. Had to get, they basically get a one game suspension without pay. So that's how you get around this. Here's a question for you legally though, John, what if, uh, what if I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan and Kyrie Irving's face is on the ticket? And I'm paying a lot of money to go see the Brooklyn Nets, and Kyrie Irving is not playing for Brooklyn Nets. Can I legally ask for money back for the Brooklyn Nets because they're presenting me with a flawed product now? <laughs> That's interesting. Oh man, I wish Richard was here because <laughs> he would—he could go on for an hour about this. this is I mean, I know it's a—I know it's a classic <laughs> nuisance lawsuit, but no, no, I, no, I would just no, say no, it's not, not. No, it's not a nuisance. No, actually, Bill, this is you—you you should have gone to law school because you have put your nose on an interesting line of division. So, generally, I would say you're right. You don't have a right to see a particular person play. Right. But there are these weird cases where suppose they're actually with performing arts, which is yeah. basically what basketball is, right? <laughs> um, suppose you pay to, to go to the San Francisco opera to see a specific singer, right? And they advertise so-and-so's coming from Europe and she's going to sing da-da-da-da-da. And so you only buy the ticket because you want to see her. And then the understudy shows up instead because she doesn't come. Uh, can you, so this is, uh, can, so in, in other words, instead of a right to money, you know, damages, mm -hmm. do you have a right to force the other person on the contract to what we call perform their contract specifically? And so there are some cases here and there where if it really was the singularly famous person or unique talent and you paid for that specific person, right, then maybe you can force orchestra right. to give you your money back because you really went just to see her. I don't think it works with a basketball team because you're right. Even though you advertise Kyrie Irving and, and there's that other guy there, Durant, don't forget him. He's right. not bad, right. <laughs> but right. I think uh, if it was just really one person, you might have a much better case. Yeah. Very well put. So is there legal precedent for what's going on here in terms of mandates, John, has the mm -hmm. federal government done this in the past? So this is, this goes back to the, the rights question. As far as I know, the federal government has never done anything like this before. Mm -hmm. And States have done it before. And there is only one Supreme Court case from 1905 called the Jacobson case, which right. involved Cambridge, Massachusetts. So this is the case that you, if you're working for the federal government or your uh, parent doesn't want to send your, your kid to one of these schools, you know, doesn't want to get your kid inoculated to go to school. This is the case you rely on. It's this Jacobson right. case. And the, but it's very different. And, and oh, the interesting, other interesting thing is it's the last time and only time the court, the Supreme Court has really said, is there an individual right of bodily integrity, right? That's the phrase we might be talking about later with the abortion cases mm -hmm. to say, I don't want my, I, the government can't force me to take an injection, to, to, right, to break my skin. So uh, in Jacobson, the court denied that kind of right, but it was different. Uh, one is in 1905, we didn't have uh, an understanding of individual rights that was as broad now as, a, you know, as broad then as now. Then also it was smallpox. Right. And so Cambridge, Massachusetts said, I think reasonably so, smallpox has something like a 33% mortality rate, not 0.10%. And uh, right, it's uh, it just much more, and it's much more communicable. It's much more deadly to society. And so the court said, yes, you have a right to be left alone. This is basically what it said. It's very early 20th century. You have the right to be left alone, but not so far as it affects other people. 
And mm-hmm. so it's not just that you have the individual right to decide, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to take the risk. But I think what concerned the court was, but by not getting inoculated, you can't get the herd immunity. You might spread it to other people too. Right. So if you're, you know, the person who works for the federal government now, or you're the parent of a child, you might say, that's an old case. It's, you know, that's pre-Roe, that's pre-Brown. Back mm-hmm. in 1905, we still, the court still said segregation was okay. Like there's just such, it's from another world. And we also have much more protections now for your body. Like, for example, you can't, the government can't force you to, to, to hand over your blood. You can't give you force you a blood test, stomach pump without a judicial warrant. Uh, So the court could, I could easily see a court saying that was then this is now uh, we, right. We're, we're a court that has identified lots of reasons for personal autonomy, integrity, and control of your own body. And if you can also show this is a disease that's not as mortal and not as communicable, or you promise to do something else, like take a test or quarantine right. yourself as an alternative, we're not going to follow the Jacobson. So that's all up for grabs, I would say. So, so, so it sounds like you're suggesting that we need a sort of a son of Jacobson, that we need 115 years later, a more updated version of this ruling. But the question would be, though, John, what case would you want it to be based on? In other words, what, what if the court's going to make a decision mm-hmm. ultimately on this, what what kind of case should they be hearing to, to springboard love, it? Yeah, this is a great question because it scrambles conservative liberal. Right. Because you know a lot of the people who don't want to get vaccinated t- tend to be conservatives or Republicans, according to the polling. You know this data better than I do. Mm-hmm. Those are the same people, though, who I would say would want to cite the line of cases about personal privacy that led to abortion and Perot versus Wade and Casey. Mm-hmm. Those are the cases that talk about a right of privacy, a right of bodily integrity. So I would right. say, ironically, the cases you would want to cite, are, and then there's another line of cases. Um, that are in the criminal procedure area about what the police can do. It's interesting. The, uh, I, I've never taken a breathalyzer, I'd like to say. <laughs> I don't know about you. Are, I don't know how many of the listeners on the show have. But um, you know, there is this line of cases in the criminal area that fought about um, DNA testing, uh, breathalyzers, and so on. A lot of those are built on the idea that you do have a right against it. Mm-hmm. But because you drive, when you go on the public roads, I think this totally made up. But this is what the court says. You consent to the right to have yourself tested in various ways to make sure you're not drunk driving. Um, if you're arrested or something, you and you, that's part, you're in a way consenting, I guess, in some way, or you've lost a little bit of privacy to get your cheek, you know, inside your cheek swabbed for DNA. But suppose you're just sitting in your house, you're Bill Whalen sitting in your house and you're not doing anything. You're not harming anybody. You're not driving. Can the government come into your house without a warrant and then, you know, inject you with something you don't want? Mm-hmm. I think, that's a pretty good argument, but it relies on a line of cases conservatives really want overturned <laughs> in all these other areas. And liberals, right, who generally are pro-vax vaccination, they would have to say, no, no, yeah, you have a right of personal integrity, bodily integrity, but it has limits, right, where it doesn't harm so, other people. So just like you 20 years ago, there's some smart guy in the Justice Department sitting here right now writing a legal justification for this. <laughs> and, he's, and as you know, uh, the day we're uh, taping this, it's been about a month now since President Biden announced the vaccine mandate, and still yes. OSHA has issued no rule yet, because I think it's causing the lawyers in the just enormous headaches trying to figure out how to justify it. 
Well, John, sometimes the mail moves slow in Washington, I guess. <laughs> Thank well, God. Uh, shift over to the Supreme Court's your old stomping ground. I should have mentioned that, that John, you was in a past life as a Supreme Court clerk. Um, John, let's begin with this. Justice Alito uh, last week gave a speech at Notre Dame Law School, and he was uh, in a mood, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he very publicly lamented that the Supreme Court is being cast in his words as a, quote, dangerous cabal, deciding important issues in a novel, secretive, and proper way in the middle of the night. What is the burr that got under the justice's saddle? Ah, so this is something called the shadow docket. It sounds yes. so mysterious and bad, but something has been around a long time. Um, and actually, it's mostly used for death penalty cases, and it used mm-hmm. to be mostly used by liberals. Right. Can you explain why? So, uh, you know, the, the average Supreme Court case, when you see it, you, know, you see all the grandeur, the oral arguments and the justices, you know, sitting together in a small room arguing about it. It usually takes years from when a case gets started, makes it to all the way up the chain of courts, all the way to the Supreme Court. But there's something, maybe a lot of people don't know this, there's an emergency method that you can use to get to the Supreme Court quickly. And that's when you, you like usually death row inmates who are about to be executed, mm-hmm. right? They will uh, say that you, you can go immediately within maybe a day or a few, a few days go from, and you, what you're doing is seeking emergency, what's called emergency stay. You're asking the court, to reach down all the way down to the prison warden and say, stop what you're doing. You might be doing, you might not, you are, but you might be doing something unconstitutional. So everyone freeze. So we have time to hear the case. That's the shadow docket, right? Or it's yeah, people asking the court to hear things at the last minute or, or emergency. Cause they say by the time the court acts normally in its multi-year process, we will have suffered serious harm. You got to stop it now. And so uh, people who are against the death penalty, they first started the idea of let's, um, you know, use this to pressure the justices at the last minute to stop death because it's irrevocable once you've carried it out. So then this is funny. The reason it became late at night. So when I clerked, one of the duties you had as a clerk was to um, hang around when there were executions scheduled and you would pull an all nighter. Right. Because what state, this is what Texas in particular started doing is they say, oh, okay, well, if the Supreme Court's going to start issuing these stays at the last minute, we're going to start scheduling executions at midnight and make those justices stay up. <laughs> and these are old justices, so they don't like staying up to midnight. You know, you and me, Bill, we're watching, uh, you know, old uh, late night TV reruns then and infomercials. Most of the justices have been asleep for three or four hours by midnight. And so they... This is very funny. So they got the idea of, oh, let's keep everybody up late at night if they're going to really stick it to us and stop our executions. So there's this process that grew out of the death penalty, I would say the death penalty system that created this emergency system for court action. And so you've seen a lot of these decisions. Uh, some of them involve COVID. So the right. two lockdown cases out of New York and California were kind of rushed through in this way. Some of the cases that were uh, that the court's been talking about the Texas abortion bill, uh, you know that that's been much in the news, was kind of rushed to the court in this emergency way. Right. And so uh, the, the New York Times and uh, and I think uh, several Democrat senators have even had hearings now about it. Have said this is some kind of sneaky way that the Supreme Court, the conservative majority on the court, has been using to get its way without normal scrutiny. But I would say, guess who invented the whole process in the first place? Right. Liberals. 
Right. Let's talk a minute about the justice who you clerk for, Clarence Thomas. Um, A lot made this week, John, about uh, if not a new Clarence Thomas, a different Clarence Thomas, and that he seems to enjoy the return to in-person arguments. He came out swinging. He started asking questions, which historically Clarence Thomas does not do, but apparently he's speaking. What what do you think is going on with the good justice? You know, he's still living in Zoom world, it sounds like. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you may remember for the uh, during the lockdown period, the court went to oral argument over the phone, essentially. And so since there was no way to really replicate it, I, I, you know, I hope everyone who listens, if they have a chance to be in Washington, to go visit the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. because even though it's a grand building, it looks like a Greco-Roman temple. The actual area where the arguments take place is very small and intimate. Um, right. The council is just a few feet from the nine justices who all sit kind of crammed together. It seems like when you look at it and there it's very, it's uh, you know very easy and quick um, to ask questions. So as you said, justice Thomas didn't ask questions, but then during zoom world, because they couldn't replicate that they took turns mm-hmm. in order of seniority. So that meant justice Thomas often got to go second right after the chief justice. And so he right. got in the habit of asking a lot of questions and I could have told people this who were shocked by it, but, uh, Justice Thomas actually really prepares for cases and has a really deep understanding of them. But he didn't like to ask a lot of questions. Since he got quality time set aside for him, he used it. And now I think he's gotten used to it and likes it. And so I think we're going to see uh, even more Clarence to the point where people might say, God, I wish he was like the way he was before 2020 and he would shut up for once. <laughs> Uh, he's an interesting spot, John, because let's see, he came on the court in 19, was it 1991? Mm-hmm. Right. So this is now 30 years he's been on mm-hmm. and he's looking at history down the road. If he keeps going at this and there's no signs of him slowing down, he is slowly moving up the ladder of uh, longest serving justices. Yeah. So the, uh, so several things first, he, um, uh, only in the last few years has become what's called the senior justice. So he, as you say, he's the longest serving justice now that gives him a lot of power on the court because uh, when the chief justice is in the majority of you know the court, he gets to assign the opinion. And you notice Chief Justice Roberts likes to assign the big ones to himself, you know, like the Obamacare case we talked about yes, or uh, the case last year from voting rights that got a lot of attention, but which I think will fade away. Um, I'm sure that if there's a majority that upholds Roe versus Wade, he's going to assign that to himself too. Mm-hmm. But when he's not in the majority, guess who assigns? He controls the opinion. Justice Thomas now. That's uh, get, that's like the power that Brennan had in the 80s. It gives right. him a lot of power to control. We're going to have a really revolutionary opinion. Are we going to have a more incremental opinion? Uh, and then, as you said, the second thing is he's had a career now. In fact, um, this month, it's a great point. In, I think, two weeks, it's going to be his 30th anniversary of his appointment. In fact, there's right. a conference I'm going to in Washington to recognize it. And uh, he has put out Dozens upon dozens of very, I think, revolutionary, even radical opinions about where the Constitution should go. Uh, And now it's his chance, perhaps, to lead a five-justice conservative majority into putting some of those ideas into practice. Um, To me, it could be very much like the Warren Court, but for conservatives. So it's interesting. uh, Earlier this week, Bill, we did a panel at Berkeley the Bohol School of Law, I still call it, but it's been denamed. So it's Berkeley Law now, officially. Right. And, you know, we had our great liberal dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, and we had a conservative professor, and we had a liberal professor. And it was interesting. First time in my whole career, we spent the whole time talking about what conservatives think 
<laughs> usually when you have these panels about the Supreme Court, you're usually talking about what liberals think. And then all these crazy conservative dissenters, they said this and that, but it was still, oh, well, how's it fit into what liberals think? For the first time, I can never remember the whole panel was, well, this conservative was arguing against this other conservative. And we didn't mention what the liberal justices thought at all because huh. they have become irrelevant. I know it's the, it really is like, the, I sat there and go, this is, Am I in, you know, am I in Bizarro World from, you know, from Superman comics or from Seinfeld? It was unbelievable. And I think that's going to be the way it is as long as Justice Thomas is around. Uh, for, so probably for another 10, 15 years, it'll right. be like this. Let's uh, let's dive into three cases here, John. Uh, so you mentioned Roe v. Wade a couple of times. Uh, the court has before it a 2018 Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Yeah, this is so this is a. I mean, everybody always says, oh, this is a big term, but this is really a big term mm -hmm. because it does put Roe versus Wade squarely in the sights of this new conservative majority and to see whether uh, they're really as conservative as people think, or as um, you know, their critics said during the confirmation hearings of you know, Justice Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Right. So this is, uh, and it's hard, although I can see a way the court might try to avoid it, but on its face, this statute directly conflicts with Roe versus Wade, which was later upheld by Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is from 1992. Uh, and in that case, the governing law today is that uh, within the first, uh, well, it needs to be the first trimester, but up until the point of viability of the fetus, the state really is not allowed to infringe or place what's called, quote unquote, undue burden on the mm -hmm. right of uh, the mother. After the point of viability and getting farther and farther along through pregnancy, the state's interest becomes more and more powerful, and the state has a greater, greater right to regulate abortion, and I think probably by the third trimester has a right to ban it completely. So Mississippi's law says basically no abortions after 15 weeks. Right. And so when I saw that statute pass, I went right away and looked at what does medical science consider viability, and it's around 24 weeks. So it seems to me that is, and Mississippi has not done this by mistake. They've said, we pass this law specifically to get Casey and Roe overturned. So, I mean, if that, that, that could be the blockbuster decision for the Supreme Court since right, 1992, the last time abortion really came up on the radar screen and potentially, because a lot of people thought it would be overturned in 1992. Now, let right. me just uh, one small correction. It's not that the Supreme Court would say abortion is banned throughout the country. What would be the result would be the court would say the issue is returned to the states mm -hmm. to decide, just like they decide on the death penalty and they decide on euthanasia and they decide a lot of life and death matters right. through the criminal law. Okay, so it's a 6-3 court, John. So for Roe to be upheld on a 5-4 vote, basically, two two perceived conservative justices have to join the three perceived liberal justices. So Chief Justice Roberts and who else defects? So that's, I think, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. And this, is, this is why I think this. So one, I don't think it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett mm -hmm. uh, because uh, she wrote a number of law review articles while she was a professor at Notre Dame before she was confirmed for the bench. Mm -hmm. And they were about this question, like how much, uh, how much deference do we give to past decisions? What we call in the law stare decisis, which just means to stand on decisions, which like most Latin in the law is completely made up bad Latin. <laughs> so, but that's what we call it stare decisis, stare decisis. So Justice Barrett's opinion in those articles was 
it's a good thing. But if the decision's really wrong, we shouldn't follow it. Seems to me, you know, a lot of scholars, conservative and liberal, think that Casey and Roe are badly done opinions. You might have other theories for why abortion might be a protected right, uh, even though it's unmentioned in the Constitution. But the grounds that the court gave in Roe and Casey are not compelling. So I could easily see, I, I have a hard time seeing Barrett upholding Casey. Right. So it really comes down to Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts. Now, the reason I think Chief Justice Roberts might uphold Roe is a few years ago, he actually did a really strange thing in an abortion case. There were these abortion cases, laws from Texas mm-hmm. and Louisiana, which were identical, word for word, almost word for word the same. And they said, for a doctor to be able to do abortions in our state, he or she must have admitting privileges at the local hospital. Mm-hmm. So the first time this came up, uh, the in Texas, I think it was the first one, the court struck it down when Justice Kennedy was around and Chief Justice Roberts dissented. Right. And he said, no, we should, that, that's a reasonable state regulation. Then a few years later, it came up just, I think two years ago, it came up again from Louisiana. And this time Robert said, no, I'm going to vote to uphold it. Because the earlier decision, even though I disagree, even though he's on the record saying, I think the earlier decision is wrong, I'm going to uh, defer to the past. So a lot of conservatives who want Roe versus Wade overturned, you know, lost a lot of faith in Chief Justice Roberts at that point, because they could see him right setting the marker for the grounds for upholding Casey and Roe. Kavanaugh then is the wild card, mm-hmm. as you as you uh, you know suggest. As, you know, he's never written in a major opinion on this issue when he was a, a circuit judge in the D.C. Circuit, you know, the, the federal appellate court in Washington. Um, he generally, if you look at his voting patterns so far and major cases, he does seem to go along with Chief Justice Roberts. You know, Chief, I could see Chief Justice Roberts, you know, you know, who'd love to have a, you know, a, to ha- be a fly on the wall of this conversation. I'm sure Chief Justice Roberts is going to go see Brett Kavanaugh in person with nobody else in the room and say something along the lines of, if we overturn Roe, this country's going to go ballistic. <laughs> and exactly. yeah, and the court is going to be a political issue and people are going to start attacking us. And we really have to keep the court out of politics, Brett. You really have to. So this was my next. Follow me. <laughs> this was my next question, John. In terms of sorry for going on so long. No, 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 not at all. You gave a very, uh, very nuanced legal argument for what Roberts may do, and I'm going to push back with the shallow one, which you're getting into now, which is that this is a justice who has one eye on what historians are going to say about him. Yes. And so that's the that's a justification for what he did on the Obamacare vote, which, if you look at his argument, is I think we could say it's a tortured logic at best. Yes. Uh, but he'll do the same on Roe because he's very concerned about how history remember him. But if you're a young justice and Kavanaugh is what in his what second, third year now, he's still a he's still a cub. Um, mm-hmm. Do you view the world the same as the chief? Because, you know, it's it's the Roberts court, not the Kavanaugh court. It, it's a great question. In fact, liberals have been writing pieces and, you know, various places like the Atlantic, I think, and so on, right. trying to dissect the psychology of one Brett Kavanaugh. And who, has, long- <laughs> who, who I think tested positive for COVID, did he not? Yes, in fact, he yes. just tested COVID uh, positive and was not at oral argument, but apparently has no symptoms. Uh, so uh, he has a breakthrough case, though. Yeah. Um, so you could see, the, it's funny, these pieces, I read them, they're like, they say basically, yeah, we accused him of being a rapist <laughs> and a terrible harasser and an evil man. But now we really got to make nice with Kavanaugh because he's the only thing standing between us and a world without Roe versus Wade. Exactly. So how do we do that? So, 
and they're they're quite uh, manipulative. They're like, uh, you know, what worked on Kennedy will work on him. Let's make him a star. Let's invite him to all our schools. Give fancy talks. Let him invite him to Austria to go to the Salzburg seminars and this kind of thing and that kind of thing. What we should be doing is praising him, not attacking him. Um, because I think you're right, Bill. It's an interesting question. Once you're there at the court and you're there for life, well, what really motivates you, <laughs> right? What's the, what's the point? So as you said, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, he's a chief justice. It's going to be called the Roberts Court. He wants it to be remembered for certain things. Um, he doesn't want to be the justice, I guess, who inserted the court into politics and had it attacked. Although my view is that just encourages more attacks, but he doesn't want it to um, be seen as a political instrument. It's what motivates a younger guy, like you said, like uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So I, I had this experience when I clerked for Clarence Thomas. I clerked for him when I was uh, when he was just in his fourth year on the bench. And I think what motivated him was uh, I don't care about the politics. I want to get to what I think is really right. And he had a grand view of the. Con I didn't even really fully realize the extent of it. He had a profound view of the Constitution um, that had to do with natural rights, and it was very much shaped by why he thought. Dred Scott and Plessy were wrong, and he over time has implemented it. I don't know if that's Kavanaugh. I don't right. see in Kavanaugh this kind of mind that has this already this broad vision of the Constitution. So what motivates someone like a Brett Kavanaugh? I don't think he wants to go down as a politician. I mean, you, the, the person, he, the justice he cleared for, uh, Tony Kennedy, was right. often criticized like right. that. And I don't think he would want to go down as sort of a core politician on the other hand, I don't think he wants to be a justice who's sort of shunned by polite society in, you know, Bethesda, Maryland, or the fancy parties in Washington, D.C. either, which is where he has to spend the next 30 years of his life. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure what he's going to do. I could easily see him saying uh, to the Chief Justice, yeah, I, I'll go along with you on this one. That's, that's really, I think, what's going to decide this, uh, unfortunately. Okay, let's move on to case number two, John. This involves New York State's gun law. It's a century-old mm. law that places restrictions on who can receive a concealed carry handgun license. Mm. Again, if it weren't for abortion, this would be the blockbuster case of the term. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, and, and, then, and then I think this one will break down on conservative versus uh, liberal lines. I think it will probably be 6-3 if it's not 5-4, but... Uh, if you may remember the court for most of its history never. So this is funny. So I had a friend who campaigned for Congress once who was a, a law professor at, uh, and up in uh, Davis. And so after I um, after he lost, as he should have, because no law professor should ever again be in elected politics. I asked him, you know, what what did the what did the people when you were campaigning? What do they think about the Constitution? And he said, guess what? There's only one phrase from the Constitution most people know. I was like, really, which one is it? Is it like we the people or is it like, he said, it's the right to bear arms. Exactly. <laughs> like the only one that they can quote accurately from the constitution is the right to bear arms. And he didn't mean, and he said, I, I, he didn't mean arms that were uncovered. He didn't mean short sleeve shirts. He meant the right to, but this is the shocking thing. The court did not say that that was actually a constitutional right until the 2000s. And uh, these two cases, one out of Washington and then one out of Chicago, these were laws that basically banned completely personal ownership of firearm, and the court struck those down. But the court also said in those cases, we're not saying the right to have a gun is absolute. The right to have a gun is like other rights. It can be balanced against important government needs. So, for example, even after those laws, no one thinks 
people can bring guns into the White House, right, or into the Capitol or so on. So, or school zones, whatever the, you know, it's a, but it's going to be, but nobody knows what that is because the court has never taken another case since those early cases 20 years, almost 20 years ago now. So what we're actually more than, yeah, almost 20 years ago. So the, and, and conservatives have been complaining. In fact, Justice Thomas, you mentioned, had written opinions saying, what is this? Is the Second Amendment like a second class right? We've never taken any cases. We, nobody knows mm-hmm. how far your right to have a gun goes. So this is the first big case that the court has taken ever to say, well, now that we've said there's a right to bear arms, you ever, how far does it go? In New York, and we have a similar law in California, but I don't know if you ever try to get a concealed carry permit, but apparently you have to go to the sheriff yes. and you have to show good cause to why you should be allowed to have a handgun. It's similar in New York. You have to have a really good reason. Uh, I think really, uh, as I understand, I've never tried to apply for one. Now I should just to go through the process. It'd be fun. Like I, I went and did the handgun test just to see what it was like, which was a hilarious experience, by the way. Well, I'll get really? to tell you about later, but uh, Basically, so few were given out in these states, New York and California, that the plaintiffs saying essentially it is a, a regulation that deprives us of our right, or to have to show that we've received death threats from people, essentially, to get to it is much narrower than what the Constitution requires. I could easily see, I, I, in fact, I would be shocked if the court did not strike these laws down. I think the conservatives are fairly unified on this. Um, I could even see Chief Justice Roberts has never really questioned, I think, the right to bear arms. I could easily see this being a 6-3 uh, case. Also, the court, I think, um, you know, it's, it's only treating the Second Amendment right the same as all the other rights. So it's an easy right. thing for the court to do. It doesn't have to say, uh, oh, we're going to announce some brand new right that's not in the text of the Constitution, blah, 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 you know, which is what abortion is about. This is one where there's a text in the Constitution. It's been there a long time. A lot of people know it's there doesn't require, I think, a big heavy lift, although it will be unpopular too. I don't know what what the polls show, Bill, but I think aren't a majority of people in the country in favor of gun control of some kind. So it might be a very unpopular decision. So so I'm glad you mentioned that because polling with guns, just as polling with abortion is very complicated, John. Mm -hmm. If you poll people on whether or not a woman should have a right to choose, you probably get a majority in the country. But then again, if you poll on should there be restrictions in certain cases, you could get a majority on that as well. Mm -hmm. The same thing on guns. Uh, should people have the right to bear arms? Yes. Should there be restrictions? Yes. Hmm. <laughs> so that you could say, you could see the court doing that. Gets, exactly. So I, if I were, if I were predicting what the opinion will actually say, maybe we should buy gun stocks now because what the court will say is uh, there is a right to bear arms. It is subject to reasonable regulation. These regulations are not reasonable because you shouldn't have to show that you're under death threat to get a concealed carry permit. So you can have permits for guns, but they have to be given out on standards that are more than just personal self-defense in your house. Right. Yeah. I could, and I could, and again, uh, one more thing, just like with abortion, we shouldn't forget we live in this, it goes to your initial questions about the vaccine. We still live in a state country where the states still are the primary authorities. Mm-hmm. All this law would say is the states, you know, still have a lot of flexibility in deciding what their gun control regimes will look like or not. I was in Texas and Dallas last week. I, think you don't even need a permit to have any kind of gun there right <laughs> so, and that you can carry them around in in, uh, in public places so <laughs> uh you know states can be free to be much more uh you know right much more generous in their yeah. handgun rights 
By the way, John, recent history will show that if you invest in uh, gun companies in the first year of a Democratic presidency coinciding with Democratic Congress, you get re good returns on your investment. People, <laughs> people go out and they buy guns in hordes because they think my guns are about to be taken. Oh, that's, that's so counter to what I would have thought it should go up in Republican administrations because it's easier to buy them, I would have thought. No, just the opposite. It's just yeah, they're going to go away. I better get them right now. I better hoard them. Uh, let's go on to the third case, John. Okay, so you think conservative majority, not sure about conservative majority on abortion. You think it holds a lot on guns. Let's go to case number three now. Mm. This is a question, John, of aid for religious schools. This is yeah. based on a rule uh, in the state of Maine, barring the use of student aid programs for school that teach, quote unquote, sectarian religious content. Mm -hmm. It's a question of whether a state can bar aid uh, from going to, to, towards students, John, attending schools that teach religion in the class. Again, but this is a, a interesting question. It has a long history. I think in the end, the court's conservative majority again will uh, strike down any limits on the ability to use these kind of vouchers, essentially, at religious schools. And this has been an area where it's not just the Roberts Court. This has been going on since the Rehnquist Court, but it's really accelerated under the Roberts Court, which is real sensitivity to the right of religious minorities. Right. And so the court's really suspicious of are laws that either on their face or in intention seek to disfavor religious groups uh, as opposed to any other kinds of groups. So there have been a few cases that have been similar. So there was a case in the Rehnquist court where um, vouchers, uh, you know, some states allow, uh, give out vouchers to poor families to use it at private schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, even uh, a court that had uh, Justice Kennedy and O'Connor on it said, well, if the private, you know, if the family wants to take that money and spend it, say, at a Catholic school, that's not a violation of the Establishment Clause. So we've talked a lot about the Free Exercise Clause. There's also something called the Establishment Clause, which says the state can't establish a church or a religion. Right. state can't establish a religion. And so in the Warren Court years, I think that was overread to say there must be a wall of separation. That's actually Jefferson's words, not the founder's words a wall of separation between church and state. And so the court really tried to block any kind of state aid to religious schools or institutions. So, uh, but on the other hand, right, we do see things like vouchers, Pell Grants, right? I'm sure you can use federal financial aid at Notre Dame or Georgetown, you know, really. Mm -hmm. So this is just really the next. So then a few years ago, there are these, uh, these come such weird facts. Like there was a case, could uh, a, a religious institution get money from a state to, um, fix up a playground because the state was giving out money to everybody else to fix up playgrounds. Mm -hmm. The state said, no, because you're a church. The court struck that down and said, no, you have to treat religious groups equally. You can't single them out. So it seems to me this is the, the and, the, and this is really, I think religious groups have almost an unbroken record of success in the Roberts court. So you were asking, you know, historically you look back, what does Roberts care about? You know, what historians look at is what happened in the Roberts Court, maybe the number one or two thing, uh, standing changes in the law that they brought about was much broader rights for religion. And this, so I can't, I said, again, I have a hard time seeing the court turning its back on that all of a sudden and saying this neutral program, right, that's not designed to help religion on its face, it's just helping people go to school because there's so few people in Maine, right, in these parts right. of town that there's no, it doesn't make sense to build a school it's up to them to choose where to spend it, and they choose a religious school, then what's the harm? And how many of the conservative justices are Catholic, John? <laughs> so it's interesting. I think for a few years, 
all the justices but one were either Catholic or Jewish. And there was just one Protestant who was Justice Stevens. Right. Uh, I don't, I certainly don't look at it this way. Uh, and I'll explain why in a second, but um, let's see. I think there are at least, I think five or six, depending on how you count it, right. maybe seven even who are Catholic. Uh, and then there, you know, right. there's some who raise Catholic and maybe Protestant now. Um, uh, so, uh, and then there's uh, justices uh, and then there's, um, I think Justice Kagan and Breyer are Jewish. I think Justice Sotomayor is Catholic. So it might be even seven, seven yes. Christian, but maybe six Catholic. You know, there, there was this line of attack that liberals waged um, saying, oh, all these Catholic justices, you know, they're biased. So I wrote a little piece saying, well, what are they biased about? Are they biased about gay rights? <laughs> because this court actually has expanded gay rights. Even Justice Gorsuch wrote the Bostock decision. Uh, which said that sexual orientation, not just gender, was a ground uh, for protection uh, under the federal laws. Uh, is it a court? Is this holy Catholic court been? Uh, has it uh, right struck down the death penalty? Right. Mm-hmm. Which you, no, in fact, it's upheld the death penalty. So I don't think Catholic or not has anything to do with how they vote. But it is something you hear constantly in the media. You know, you're, you're the you know you're the presidential speech junkie, right? Doesn't it remind you? Of the attacks on John F. Kennedy when he was running for office. I mean, does Chief Justice Roberts have to give a speech like Kennedy's speech and say, right, I, you know, I'm not ruled by Rome. I'm not an officer of the Vatican. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, before let's, let's close our chapter on the Supremes now. Um, I'm going to throw a theory at you in that um, Stephen Breyer should probably be sending a thank you note to Kristen Cinema. Uh, <laughs> currently being hounded in every bathroom, airline, or wherever she goes in public. Oh, the, yeah, I the saw crazy that. people with cameras and stuff like that. Oh. It could be Justice Breyer in another world with the crazy left trying to get him out of uh, getting off the court. Um, do you see the justice stepping down after this? So I think in a normal time, <laughs> you would see justices do try to time their retirements uh, not for, not, it's not politics like Republican Democrat. More, right. they like to have a president who's going to appoint someone who's similar to their views, right? Because they want their views to continue to live on. Right. And so, uh, a great example of this is Byron White, who was appointed by President Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Even though he became pretty conservative, you know, he waited a long time. He retired under President Clinton, who, you know, was this, it's hard to believe, was the centrist Democrat right. uh, back then. Um, Justice, another good example is Justice Souter, who was appointed by George H. W. Maybe you were, maybe you had your hand in that. You were around for that one. You know, Justice Souter appointed by George H. W. Bush. We tend not to talk about that one. <laughs> but he became very, very liberal. Yes. And he waited to retire for a Democratic president. Same with John Paul Stevens, you know, mm-hmm. appointed by Ford, waited for a Democrat to appoint a liberal to replace him. So, so in one end, you could see Breyer saying, yeah, bank, if I'm going to retire. The, the bank is open. Yeah, yeah. If, if I'm going to retire, let's do it under a Democratic president. On the other hand, Breyer, you know, you mentioned these speeches. Breyer has also been giving a few speeches and interviews, and he gave a speech criticizing the idea of packing the court, right, right. changing the side of the And he said, look, and this is very conventional, actually, way mm-hmm. of understanding the Supreme Court. So he said, look, the court um, doesn't have troops. It doesn't have money. It doesn't have legislation. The only reason people listen to us is because they think we're legitimate. And so he said, the more you all attack us, the more you all want to play games with the politics of the court and expand its size, narrow it. Right. The more you do that, the more it looks political to everybody. And the more it looks political to everybody, the more people will defy us or just not, or not listen to us. So you could see Breyer in his mind saying, does my retirement 
actually accelerate that dynamic I've just been criticizing. If I try to retire, I could see a Breyer saying, uh, and Breyer, remember, I, I, he, you know, he's a great scholar. You know, he was a hard law professor. He worked on Capitol Hill. Um, right. He's a great, I mean, he's a moderate, moderate Democrat. I mean, he was actually very much a Clinton appointee. I could see him saying, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if it was a Democratic president who appointed me, um, but it was a Republican Senate. You know, appointed my successor, but it was a Democrat, a Republican Senate that had to confirm my successor because that will bring the temperature down and moderate it a little bit. Now, but I'm sure he has like, you know, 99% of Democrats saying, retire now, retire now before the next election. <laughs> well, there's kind of an RBG element to this, John, and that uh, the late Justice Ginsburg likewise was very critical about court packing. And the more that uh, people pushed her to try to step down, uh, the more she pushed back and said, I will do it on my own clock. But there's one difference here in that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was very much a creature of Washington. Really, that job and that whole existence was her life. I don't know about Stephen Barr if that's a case. So maybe you can make the argument that Barr could more easily walk away from it than her. Two, two points. Uh, there's good points. One, uh, two points uh, just to come. One is, I think Justice Ginsburg, like everyone else in the country, thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Yeah. <laughs> right? So her, you know, her, and I could see her actually being enamored of the idea of the first woman president, right? <laughs> Appointing her, you know, uh, boy, she miscalculated like you did. I, so I, she, actually, so I she woke up the morning after the election and said, what? <laughs> <laughs> better get on that treadmill and stop eating fatty foods. Right. Um, I don't actually don't know what you uh, what your predict. I don't remember what your prediction was for the 2016 election, but every reasonable person was wrong, Joe. And I've been wrong every step of the way of Donald Trump going back to 2015. <laughs> but that, that's a, that's another show in itself. But oh, no, I didn't, let's do I, that one. I didn't see it coming, and she obviously didn't see it coming too. So you're saying right. that she was she was. Thinking, I think she was planning to Hillary. retire under Hillary Clinton. I think right. it would have made, and you know what, it made lessons because Hillary Clinton. Remember, she started her well, career, made a lot of her name by being. You know, a proponent of women's rights, it would have been right. perfect. But John, then, she also got she also got pushed hard by the Obama White House back in 2014 when she didn't making, like it. making the argument that you know we're going to lose the Senate here very soon. We better move on this. And you're right, didn't care for it at all. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just a Republican version. You you might have seen some of it uh, out there at the at the second part of the second two years of Trump. There were people saying Justice Thomas should retire. We taught you and I have talked yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, which I thought was crazy, but he got his third appointment anyway because right. of Amy Coney Barrett. Okay. All right. Let's shift. Oh, well, one last point is, but yeah. on Breyer and what he's like, mm-hmm. you're right. I think Breyer, he's got a lot of interests. I mean, he continues yeah. to write books, he get, he gives speeches. I think he, you know, he does, yeah, his whole life is not wrapped up in the Supreme Court. In fact, it's a funny thing. He's such a pragmatist. He always wants to make things work better. He might be bored, a little bit bored by being a Supreme Court justice. You know, he doesn't have, he doesn't have these great opinions, you know, odes to liberty and so on. He's very much a, he's an economist. He's like, so how do I improve things on the margin? So he might, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things he could still do. So I think you're quite right, Bill. He doesn't need to stay on the court his whole life. Well, it's just an interesting question, John, because you and I live in a state where uh, our Speaker of the House is, uh, let's see, she is now in her 80s. Uh, she is 81 years old, I think now. Diane Feinstein is 88 years old mm-hmm. uh, and talking about running for re-election again in 2024. <laughs> I'm just always fascinated by the dynamic of people just wanting to stay on to a job and maybe they should be thinking about moving on. So do you know the great Lyndon Johnson, if he was here, what would he do? If Lyndon Johnson were Joe Biden, <laughs> that's a, that in itself is an interesting thought. But what he would do is he would offer a job to President to uh, uh, to Justice Breyer. Yes. This is how 
uh, LBJ created the vacancy because he wanted to appoint the first black justice, Thurgood Marshall. Right. So somehow he convinced the justice who had that job that it would be a promotion for him, I think, to become UN ambassador. <laughs> and I think there are, there, you know, you could see Johnson towering over poor, I think Justice Goldberg and saying, you know, with pointing the big finger saying, yes, we need you at the UN. We really need you at the UN. But of course, what Johnson wanted to do, and he succeeded, he appointed Thurgood Marshall, which I think was a great appointment to the Supreme Court. If Biden, so the, maybe one way to think of it is, uh, you know, what could Biden appoint Stephen Breyer to that would, you know, ease him out. And also, as you say, uh, of course, you could say that about what could what should Joe Biden give to Senator Feinstein also. But here, <laughs> but here's, a, here's the problem with that, John. It's something we were talking about before we came on the air, and that's supply chain. Uh, I think Joe Biden has had two ambassadors confirmed so far. Yeah. And the rest of them sit out in limbo. I was reading a piece about Eric Garcetti, the mayor, yeah, of, the Angeles, mayor of LA, right? who's supposed to be the ambassador to India, but he yeah. cannot get a confirmation hearing right now. So you have just like those ships sitting off the ports of Los Angeles and San Francisco, you have all these <laughs> ambassadorial nominations just sitting in purgatory in Washington waiting for action. So yeah, you could offer Stephen Barr, you know, a nice ambassadorship to the Bahamas or yeah. something like that, but you know, you'd actually have to get him the you know, ambassadorship. You know what I think he would love doing? I think you could make Stephen Breyer the secretary of the treasury or something like that's the kind of thing he would really love. So that, means, that means his face goes on the trillion dollar coin or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the Bitcoin, the new federal digital Bitcoin have priors or, you know, attorney general, you know, something like something like that, you know, that yeah. might be a. Yeah. Johnson actually pulled one like that too, you know, to create another vacancy on this. Oh, I just love LBJ. Just, I, I don't love him, but I, I love reading about him. He also to create a vacancy on the court. There was a justice on the, I believe there's a justice on the court and he appointed his son attorney general and then said, well, if you want me to appoint your son attorney general, you can't be on the Supreme court. That's a conflict of interest. You've got to leave so that we can appoint, appoint your son attorney general. In case <laughs> I think looked- justice Breyer would be attorney. I think he'd be very interested in being, you know, like attorney general, you know, because he's a real problem solver. He's a real, he is a guy who wants to figure, for example, his reputation before in the court was he was a guy who wanted to make regulation rational. You know, yep. so conservatives liked his appointment to the Supreme Court back in the right. day for that. Those of you listening, by the way, if you haven't seen it already and you're uh, interested in LBJ and the style as John is describing, uh, go to HBO and find the movie All the Way. Uh, oh, yeah. It's uh, starring Brian Cranston of uh, Breaking Bad fame. And my God, and I think John has seen it. Uh, he just nails LBJ in terms of persona. But it's just this great look at just kind of the manic way that LBA LBJ ran the office in terms of phone calls and meetings and just kind of being this, you know, dynamo and just, uh, and just what a kind of hot mess he was. But uh, sounds like a good segue now, John, into Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald, the man you wrote a book, the man you went to the Oval Office and met one time, President Trump. So he's, he's in the news, John, legally. Uh, President Trump last week filing a suit in the Southern District of Florida seeking to force Twitter to temporarily reinstate him. Uh, Trump's lawyers argue that Twitter was, quote, coerced by members of the United States Congress, in its words. The complaint also reads that Twitter, quote, exercises a degree of power and control over political discourse in this country that is immeasurable, historically unprecedented, and profoundly dangerous to open democratic debate, end quote. Uh, It also claims that uh, the uh, Twitter suspension, John, violates a new Florida uh, social media law that bars social media companies from, quote, knowingly deplatforming politicians. So does the president have a case? So before I answer, I just want to make one correction. I mixed up the stories about Johnson and the justices. Oh, okay. He pulled that one on Justice Clark to create the vacancy for Thurgood Marshall. 
And then he created, he did the one on the UN ambassador with Justice Goldberg to right. create events, a vacancy for his buddy, Abe Fortas, Abe Fortas which went <laughs> yeah, down, yeah, fl- yeah, which ended yeah, up going yeah. down in flames, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was when Fortas was going to be chief justice right. that it went down in flames, but he got Fortas on the court. Right Now, Fortas made the mistake of continuing to practice law while he was on the Supreme Court, which is the problem. So uh, this, but to your question. Donald Trump, yeah. temporarily wanting to yeah, get yeah. back on Twitter. It's a complicated uh, question. Uh, and, and I think conservatives, libertarians, liberals, they don't know what to do about social media. And it's interesting, Trump's lawsuit is actually a lot better than the other lawsuits he's brought in other areas, for example. like yeah, can, can, I first, can I first point out the irony yeah. of the situation that Twitter has a political goal here. Twitter wants to destroy Donald Trump yeah. any way it can. And keeping him off Twitter, Twitter thinks, is weakening him. I would argue that actually, if you want to keep Donald Trump out of the White House forever, you put him back on Twitter, John, because you put him back on Twitter, <laughs> he'll just go back to the whole crazy stream of conscious stuff, if you will. And people will think this is why we wanted him out of office to begin with. Thank you. Actually. So I think they've done him in a roundabout way a favor by keeping off the social media. This is, you know, you make fun of me for my love of the McRib, but this is the McDonald's McRib strategy is don't put it out there very often, hide it, keep it secret, and make people want it more. And damn it, they only do it for limited time runs. I'm still right. so upset about that but i don't know whether it would be good for because twitter also probably makes a lot of money off of people following trump and reacting to his craziness and so on so it might be good for twitter also to put trump on that's a great question is it good for business or not but does he have a legal argument should he be back on twitter so i i don't think under current law the way it is now he's going to get back on twitter Mm -hmm. but the law is going to change it has to change and nobody knows which way i can make a prediction but under the current law, uh, right, the government is the only one that's bound by the free speech clause of the First Amendment. So you and I can't be kicked off a government-owned you know, network. The government has to actually let us protest on public property if we want to right. uh, within reasonable regulations. But the First Amendment doesn't apply to private people. So, you know, Bill, if you get these uh, McRib protesters showing up on your front lawn, you have every right to kick them the hell off. I can do the same on my private property. Right. The, the right to property means, in fact, the court just said this last term in a right. California case involving uh, or union organizing. It said one of the fundamental rights of private property is the right to exclude people from your property. And so you would think Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, they're privately owned companies. They have the right to decide who they let onto their networks or not. So that would is, be the simple. What is Twitter's justification for deplatforming Trump? Well, they can. Well, first of all, they can deplatform whoever they feel like. You know, they have. You know, you and I have no right to be on Twitter because it's a pub, private company. It's a so private it's a, a courtesy of extending to come on, so we can yeah. we can get rid of you. But okay. now, but you know, these networks, these social media networks, they want to say, oh, but we're going to try to follow First Amendment principles. Right. So what they say is, but it's not quite the same. But they say, well, the First Amendment generally also lets the government uh, pr- uh, regulate speech that might be threatening, harmful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so on. So we're going to keep off the network. This is Twitter and Facebook's two justifications. We're going to, you know, President Trump's inciting violence. Right. Yeah, January, it's all, you're right, this all occurs around January 6th. And so, or, and you know, so they will say, well, the First Amendment doesn't give you the right to lie, right? You mm-hmm. can, so uh, you, you can't commit, you can't commit fraud, right. that, you know, that, through speech. So they would say also he's spreading misinformation. Now, uh, the courts have generally uh, been very, very, uh, very, very skeptical of government claims to be able to do this, right? They're right. very, they, you know, the, for example, New York Times versus Sullivan, you know, the, it says 
if you and I say something, you and I can say something and print something that's even wrong about a public figure. Um, if we didn't have, uh, you know, if we didn't have malice when we did it, right? right. Essentially, that's the standard still today. So the thing that the question is, is that law going to change? Because social media, in a way, has become the public square of the 21st century, you know, because it's replaced, you know, television networks, radio, uh, actual places like at Berkeley, Sproul Plaza, where people, I don't think they've ever stopped having protests since the 60s. There's just a, right. can you, since almost functionally, this is how people interact and speak, is it eventually going to become something like what we call a common carrier? So common carrier is this phrase that refers to uh, businesses that are private, but they serve a public interest in some way. I think the fancier way to say it today is they're network industries. And these kinds of carriers don't have the right to discriminate. So I'll give you some examples. Um, United Airlines, so, you know, you and I, unfortunately, might have to fly United Airlines. They can't say no conservatives get to fly to United Airlines, only liberals, right? They have a non-discrimination obligation because they're transportation or the utility company, right? The electricity electricity company can't say no conservatives get to have electricity because we just disagree. You know, they're privately owned, but the government is allowed because of their network features, because of their public interest to place them under these kinds of obligations. So the government hasn't done it yet, but what we're talking about is in a few years, what if Congress passes a right social media non-discrimination law and says no social media companies um, which are, after all, off operating interstate, right? They're operating on networks that the government first created on the internet. We're going to say you can't discriminate based on ideology or race or religion or, or anything, or you know, any of these traditional grounds for who's allowed to use your network. And I could, if I were to bet, I would say that's eventually where we're going to get, rather than court, the law today of private property means you can kick anybody out if you want. And couldn't, of course, say uh, President Trump, with all due respect, sir, you know, Twitter is not a monopoly. Uh, there are other places for you to, you know, to express your opinion if you want to. You can create your own Twitter if you want to. Yeah, I mean, if I think the the better case for Trump would be not just going after Twitter, but going after the people who run the um, you know the infrastructure of the internet, right? right? So you've seen. I don't know if this happened to Trump, but you've seen these cases where, right, the people who run cloud services like Amazon have also been kicking people off of their services. So you can't even host a website. Right, that appeals to disfavored views. You know, views I want to have nothing to do with, but I also think they have every right to be crazy. <laughs> and so that would be an even better case for Trump would be to go after not just the you know, the website operators, but the people who make the internet work and mm-hmm. say they can't discriminate either. But you're right. If you can't show them, the, uh, let me put steps. So the other reason we might not want courts to get involved right now and say you have a right to be on Twitter is because it's a fast changing industry. We're still at the birth, right? We're still right. in the beginnings of the digital revolution. I think the last thing we want to do is make a mistake in regulation and end up like Europe, right? There are no great internet companies in Europe. There's no great, you know, hardware manufacturers in Europe because they overregulated in the beginning. You know, we don't want to make a mistake of regulation, be too tight on the companies and then kill off our, you know, one of the parts of our economy that's the envy of the world. Maybe the best move for Trump, John, is go after Facebook because it seems like it's open season on Facebook. <laughs> but, right, but uh, you know, I, I wanted to see your test, Bill. Are the share, what's the share price like? Maybe their prices are, maybe their shares are going up. Even the question. threat of regulation. 
No, it just seems between uh, the whistleblower and yeah. just uh, the yeah. outage the other day, it just seems that suddenly Facebook is a big, fat, juicy target sitting there for Congress. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, I don't I agree with you, but I don't think they're monopoly yet. No. And even if they were monopoly, there's lots of alternatives. Right? You know, remember there was something called MySpace before Facebook, before Google. There was Ask G. You know, they're all. Remember there was something called Yahoo, right? Which remember in its heyday easily could have bought Google and could have bought all these companies up. They just didn't do it. That's the thing. Like you're right there. You know, Facebook's not a monopoly. And it could disappear in 10, you could not, it may not even be around in 10 no, years. No, it's interesting, John, if you look at the internal dialogue of Facebook right yeah. now, they're understanding one thing, they're losing young people. Yeah, they're worried. And yeah. the, the future is not bright because more and more of the social media aspect of Facebook is old people and yeah. older people eventually pass away. And so they want young people. <laughs> so if you, again, internally, Facebook is looking at things other than just the social media aspect to make money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. Look, I I don't think Facebook's in the business of saying let's create a liberal paradise of speech right. and kick off all the conservatives. Right. You know, you're not going to make business. I mean, last I checked, again, Bill, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think the plurality of Americans are conservative in the country. I mean, aren't there more conservatives than liberals? It'd be a crazy business strategy to piss off all the conservatives and drive right. them somewhere else. So that's a. Th- I mean, that's that's the good thing about. Uh, the tech industry is that, you know, the Facebook and Twitter continue to discriminate. The market may punish them for it in the end. And then right. Trump doesn't need to go around suing people. I get, I, part of it's a publicity stunt. Obviously, he's keeping himself in the news and he's you know, t- surfing on the wave of a lot of discontent by conservatives and liberals against social media companies. Well, such a cynical note to end on, John, but you know the man better than I do. And you met him in the Oval Office once and you did not ask him about the McRib. I will never forget. Oh, I can't, I can't confirm or deny that we did not discuss McDonald's products in the Oval Office. Okay. Right. Now you're coming over here so I can take you to Arby's so we can uh, test, uh, test our alternative to McRib or, you, or would that be cheating on your spouse? See, this, no, no, no. See, this, you don't understand my love for the McRib. I love the McRib because it's almost like spam. I don't want anything that's really rib. I want something. <laughs> what I would really like would be a spam sandwich. You know, spam sushi is one of the great inventions of Hawaiian cuisine. I just wish it was, I mean, it kind of has a consistency of spam. I wish it tasted like spam. <laughs> we will live it there. John, you enjoyed the conversation as always. And uh, hey, we're open now. Come on over to Stanford. See us. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks a lot. See you, Bill. Hey, John. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feed. Well, at least we have a Facebook feed for now. Hopefully, they don't take it down after this conversation. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Hopefully, that doesn't get taken down either. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, www.hoover.org. Why don't you go over to it and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellowship that includes John Yu to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.